Welcome to Epiphany Brooklyn's podcast. I am Brandon Watts, lead pastor here at Epiph. Thanks so much for tuning in. Our desire is to join Jesus in his mission to redeem our city. May God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in each week. Grace and peace. You know, church, I said this earlier in the first service, and um, as we were singing that song, it caused me to ask myself why I don't bring things to God sometimes. And immediately the answer that came as I reflected on it was because I've brought really vulnerable and important things to others before, and it's been mishandled. And I've been left hurt and wounded and often with the determined mind that I won't be vulnerable or honest again. And what often happens is that I project those experiences onto God. Um, Because all I think about, even as I know, as I've been walking with Jesus for a few decades now, I know that God isn't us, right? And that I should keep myself from projecting onto God who we are and our expenses, but despite the fact that I know those things, what often compels me are my experiences, that when I am vulnerable and honest and someone mishandles it or abuses my vulnerability and honesty, that I'm just a little more reluctant with every time uh, to bring that to God. So I rather the pain of holding on to things, right, than deal with the pain of being vulnerable with God. Right, because showing your cards, walking into the company of anyone, God in particular, naked, not only is it terrifying, but often our instincts is to not do that because of our experiences. But I often have to remember that God is not us and that my experiences with others often will not be the experiences I have with God. And as we sang that, it made me think of Psalm 13, uh, where the psalmist says, How long will I store up anxious concerns within me and agony in my mind every day, O Lord? Consider me and answer, Lord, my God. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I will sleep in death. I love that picture. Restore brightness to my eyes. Because we all know what it looks like and feels like to have an ugly crying face. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I will sleep in death. And then later on in the psalm, he says, but I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. You know, the thing that is most difficult to offer, especially in hardship, is trust. But today I'm praying that God will work with our wounds. Uh, Today I'm I'm praying that you would experience God in a soft way. I think we just need the softness of God. Uh, I think we need uh, the comfort of God, perhaps now more than ever. Uh, All of us, though I don't know any of you or or very little of you, uh, I'm sure that y'all are carrying the burdens of what the last two years have been like. And for most of us that are people of color, we're carrying a lot more than that. Uh, But God is a comforting God, a soft God, and uh, I'm praying that today he would do that. Could I pray for us? Well, I was going to do it anyways. I was just being courteous. So, Lord, thank you for being kind to us. Uh, Yeah, thank you for being so tender with us and soft. God, we're all carrying so many things. We're complex beings with complex experiences. And in the routine of coming to church and seeing our people, uh, God, I pray today that nothing would be routine about today, uh, that we would experience something unique and something fresh. So, Spirit, uh, we ask you to continue to do the work that you started uh, and that we would see this as an opportunity not just to flip through pages or see words on pages, but to see your face and to experience your company. Uh, I can't do that, none of us can, so Holy Spirit, do that work and show us more of who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Y'all may be seated. Uh, Listen, man, I'm excited to be here. Uh, For those of you that might not know who I am, my name is uh, Rich Perez. I am 
born and raised New York, Uptown Dykeman particularly, so shouts to Uptown New York. Uh, oh, dang, I mean, am I here by myself? Okay. You know, I rep New York, I'm just saying, I'm from, I'm from Dykeman, you know? Uh, but uh, my wife and I, about 12 years ago, we, uh, 13 years ago at this point, planted a church uh, in the area where I was born and raised, uh, and we led that church for about 12 years until, or excuse me, 10 years until uh, December of 2020 when we transitioned out of New York uh, and to Atlanta, Georgia, where we've been for the last two years. And it's just been an experience. It's been uh, an experience because, you know, we love New York. Our kids uh, were born and raised here, uh, at least for a large part of their lives. So transitioning out of the city was challenging, uh, but also exciting because we were excited for the next season of our lives, but challenging and sad because we love New York so much. Um, <clears throat> what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So uh, I'm thankful to be here. I'm actually going to be here with you guys two more times this month, uh, and I'm really excited for that. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to jump right in uh, to John chapter 21. Uh, as a side note, one of the things I really love doing is uh, speaking and teaching because I get the opportunity to just share my perspective as I read God's word, what I hear God saying and bringing that to a people uh, that are perhaps curious and hungry to hear what God may say. And I get to do that. Thank you all for the love. Somebody was clapping for me. Uh, uh, I get to do that for your pastors. And that excites me the most because I know how uh, beautifully tragic it can sometimes be to be a pastor. Uh, the emotional burden that uh, pastors have to carry uh, while considering the social dynamics of our time, while also still loving our families and being present, uh, while also showing up for ourselves. And uh, I'm very excited uh, that Pastor B gets an opportunity to just go chill with uh, his wife and get some time off. Uh, they looking great on the gram, by the way. Y'all pastors fly, that's right. So uh, that's what excites me the most about being able to come here and, and preach God's word, uh, is being able to give your leaders a break. So uh, John chapter 21, we're going to read a big chunk of it, uh, but that's just for context. I want y'all to see uh, the full scope of the story, because I want to talk about Peter and what Peter teaches us about what it means to walk with Jesus uh, and, and what it means to speak from experience, because I think Peter teaches us something. It's, he's kind of like one of those people that you talk to that they, they kind of drop something on you, and you're like, dang, that like came with a lot of force and intensity. It feels like you're talking from experience, more than likely because they are. And I think Peter teaches us something about what it means to journey with Jesus uh, and, and grow uh, emotionally and spiritually. Because, you know, we can't say that we are spiritually mature, but yet be uh, uh, emotionally immature. That just doesn't make no sense. Uh, we're whole multidimensional people uh, so that when God grows us emotionally, it's because he's also growing us. Or excuse me, spiritually, it's because he's growing us emotionally. So that's why I want you all to see the full scope of John chapter 21. Uh, I'm reading from the CSB, uh, and it says this. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called a twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and the two other disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. Well, we're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? I feel like he was being sarcastic. Uh, you don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast your net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you will find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one that loved Jesus, this was John, uh, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, uh, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off, boy was naked, on the boat, and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from the land, about 100 yards away, the other disciples came on the boat, dragging the full of fish. I imagine the disciples like, yo, bro, you really going to leave us to like drag this whole thing by ourselves? Way to go. Uh, when they got out of the land, they saw a charcoal of fire there with fish lying on it and bread. 
Bring the fish that you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled. Oh, now he comes to help. Now Peter came and climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of, full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net did not tear. That's an interesting detail to put in the story. Uh, come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came, took bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples, interesting, after he had raised from the dead. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to them. He said to him, you know that I love you. Oh, feed my lambs, he told them. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter at this point is like, yo, bro, what's going on? He was grieved and asked him, uh, that he asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted, but... When you grow old, you will stretch out your hand and someone else will tie and carry, tie you and carry you to where you do not want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. Now, after saying this, Jesus told Peter, follow me. Now, I want to talk a little bit about what it means to speak from experience, because I think if we follow the life of Peter, particularly in this passage, we'll learn a few things that are important for us about what it means to speak with gravity, with a sense of experience. Uh, my wife and I just celebrated 15 years of marriage. We've been together for 19 years. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, been together for 19 years, been married for 15. We have two kids. My son, Josiah, who's 14, just started his freshman year in high school. Wow. And um, my daughter, Hayden Charlotte, who's 10, started her fifth grade. Um, I think that my challenges in parenting have come down to really two things, uh, and I think this helps to frame our talk for today. That I think in our relationships, the, the, the challenges that we've experienced come down to two things. The first is that as parents, we often expect our kids to behave as the adult versions of themselves with the same insight, wisdom, and confidence that it took me 20 years to discover. That I look at my kids and I'm like, yo, why are you not mature yet? <laughs> uh, why would you do that? That's not wise. Uh, what, don't you have any insight? Uh, when I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. It took me 20 plus years to discover that confidence. But I still hold them to that kind of expectation. The second one is similar, that as parents, we often subconsciously are not okay with our kids becoming something other than what makes us comfortable. We're often not okay with our kids becoming something other than what makes us comfortable. And I mentioned these two dynamics in parenting because I think sometimes we bring that into our relationship with Jesus. That we kind of carry those dynamics as it relates to our walk and our journey with Jesus. But if there's anything that I think the life of Peter teaches us about what it means to walk with Jesus, it's many things, but two that I'm going to give y'all today that I want to reflect with y'all on. The first one is this. God is better at providing than we are at producing. God is much better at providing than we are at producing. Now, check out verse 3 and what it says. Verse 3, we read that after a long night of fishing, mind you, these are professional fishermen. If you know this about the disciples, the disciples, as, as well as they were committed to uh, growing up in their Jewish traditions and faith, they were as good as fishermen because that was the trade of the time. So these guys are professional Tell them that I'll call them later. Uh, these guys were professional fishermen, right? So after a long night of fishing, Peter and the disciples caught nothing. And then in verse 6, after Jesus' advice to throw the net on the other side, the text tells us that they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. That contrast to me feels comical. Right, Because one seems to be the outcome of Peter's, Peter's effort to make something out of the desperate situation that he was in. Right, That Peter, after having lost Jesus, as well as the disciples, they had placed their hope in this God. 
is now gone. So they find themselves in a crisis. What do we do? Our leader's not here. What we had placed our hope in is no longer here. Well, let's just go back to what's familiar, what we know. And you know, to be honest with y'all, I don't blame them for this. I think oftentimes we'd probably look at that text and some people would criticize like, man, why didn't y'all have faith? Jesus said he was going to come back. That's easy to say here and now when we're on this side of the cross. But as the disciples dealt with what was actually happening in front of them, I don't blame them for this kind of desperate act to just go back to what's familiar. And here's why, because I think we typically go back to what's comfortable and what's familiar in times of crisis. Now, when our life is confronted with crisis and hardship and trials, what we often tend to do is go back to what feels comfortable and familiar. It's our effort to manufacture a safe place in a season of life that feels so disorienting, because crisis does that. Crisis throws you right off your rocker. It shifts things around. Things that were up are now down. Things that were down are now up. Trauma has that impact on us. So to go back to what's familiar just because you need a safe, a, a safe space doesn't feel far-fetched to the way that I sometimes respond to crisis. And I get it. How else do you respond after having put all your faith and hope in this one person, after having walked with this person for three years, seen him say crazy things, beautiful things, and seen him do crazy things and beautiful things, and now this person's no longer with you. Everything that you had built your life around, especially as a young Jewish boy waiting for the Messiah, everything that you had anticipated is no longer there, is taken out from right under you. I don't blame them for going back to what's familiar. I understand it. The disciples are understandably lacking faith here. And I want to encourage somebody with that word, that if you're probably sitting in here and you're struggling to trust and struggling to have faith, God gets it. He understands trauma. He understands tragedy. He knows what it does to us. Imagine how it feels to us after the 20-plus months of a global pandemic, death, social unrest, violence, and sickness. How, do, how are we doing <laughs> How are we carrying all this stuff? Church, tragedy has this way of making its home in you while slowly evicting hope. Tragedy is profoundly pervasive. Trauma is profoundly pervasive. And loss, especially when it goes unprocessed, it creates incredibly anxious people. And all anxious people want to do is find somewhere that feels safe and familiar. Something that feels mindless and routine, even if it comes at the expense of meaning and purpose. I just need something that feels familiar, Rich. I just need something that feels that it's not so shaky, where I can feel like I can set both my feet down and feel secure. Even if it comes at the, I don't even care if it requires a lot of my mind. In fact, I don't want it to require a lot of my mind. I need it to be routine. I don't even want to think about it. I want to be mindless about this activity, about this space. You know why? Because I'm just anxious. even if it comes at the expense of deep meaning and purpose. And so this explains why they went back to fishing. After three incredible years with Jesus, they went back to fishing. The disciples' world had come crashing down, and despite the fact that the risen Jesus had come back to them twice before, because remember, he says here in the text that this was the third time. Check that out. This was the third time Jesus came to them. Despite that, they're still vying for what's comfortable and familiar because they're just... They're just in survival mode. For Peter, the best way forward is survival. So you think about crisis, you think about how you're going to move forward, and for Peter, the best way forward, according to these verses, as we see them play out, is to just survive, to fend for themselves, is what he's sharing with his disciples. Listen, I'm going to just go fishing. But we've seen Jesus twice before. He's like, yeah, I still don't get it. I'm just going to go fishing. They're like, well, we're just going to come with you. <laughs> and so in a sense, this idea of going fishing or going back to what is familiar is this idea of producing for himself. I just, I lost everything that I had placed my hope in. I just need to go back to producing because that gave me meaning before. But perhaps for the first time, Peter is having to uh, understand his identity outside of what he can offer. And outside of what he can produce. Producing in this sense is about the self. 
a kind of overwhelming self-interest. You know, it's really important to understand the emotional tone behind this passage. Like if we just read this and read the words, but, try, but, but don't try to understand the emotional dynamics that are happening between the disciples and Jesus, I, I think we'll miss something deeply meaningful to what Jesus is offering the disciples when he says, yo, throw your nets on the other side. Paul, Peter, excuse me, is concerned about himself and producing for himself. But then the voice, uh, uh, then this voice comes from a shadowy silhouette figure on the shore. They didn't know who it was, but it came out to them and it said, yo, cast your nets on the other side. And that voice comes from the shadows in a sense, not to invite them to produce, but to invite them to receive. And church, I don't know about y'all, but even in my relationships, I know that I've come to realize that there is a difference between someone offering something and me actually receiving it. And what Peter is saying, what Jesus is saying here when he says, yo, cast your nets on the other side is, this isn't an invitation to produce, Peter. This is an invitation for you to receive. And according to the text and the story, they received far more than they can manage. Church, this is a really important invitation here, and I hope we don't miss what Jesus is offering. Here's why I think it's important. Because it reminds us that what we receive from God is more important to who you are becoming than what you can produce for yourself. I say this, as, uh, uh, I say this personally because I feel like this is the, the journey I'm on as a person who's been walking with Jesus for a few decades now. I'm 38. I've got two kids. That's by no means a resume. It's just to say this is my experience And despite the fact that I've been walking with Jesus as long as I have, pastored a church even, led people in their own journeys with Jesus, uh, my kids and my wife, I've realized that I'm still on this journey very fresh trying to figure out more of who I am. And that the journey of figuring out who I am and the journey of figuring out who God is are concurrent journeys. That the more I learn about myself, I am learning also about God. That I cannot progress on one road and not on the other. And I don't know where some of y'all are at. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a few months, a few years. Maybe some of y'all a few decades. Or maybe you're in here saying, I don't know who God is. I'm just trying to figure it all out. Whatever part of the journey you're in, God is saying here, there is, no, there is nothing more important to that journey of figuring out who you are than what God is trying to offer you, not what you can produce for yourself. Church, it's important to know that the, the people we're becoming is not mainly the result of what we do for ourselves, but really the people that we're around. Yeah. What, what company, what presence do they offer? How do they shape me? And largely, in fact, the relationship with God is the one that shapes me in the deepest ways. Listen to the way uh, Dr. Alan Callahan says it. He's a Harvard Divinity professor. He says it this way. You'll see it on the screen. Jesus' concern is not that the disciples work to feed themselves, but that they work to feed others. Peter has led his comrades into a self-interested pursuit of survival and prosperity. I'm going fishing. I will go with you. Jesus now prevails upon Peter to lead them to the self-availing love of others that their Lord himself has taught them. And here it is. In seeking after his own welfare, Peter gained nothing. They caught nothing. With the intervention of Jesus, there was more than enough. And this is a side note. I said it at the first service, but I'll say it here because I think it's important. Uh, I'll be here for another two weeks with y'all, and I'm excited about that. And one of the things that you'll notice is often when I quote people, I, it's really important for me that y'all see their faces, uh, especially when they're women and people of color, uh, and especially if the quote resonates. And here's why. I think sometimes part of the Christian culture that we're a part of, uh, the way that we see the world, the way that we understand God... Uh, we often forget that wisdom also comes from black people and brown people. And so when you see something that resonates really deeply, if y'all look at that quote and you're like, man, that hit hard, I'm going to sit here and say, yeah, it came from that black man. I want y'all to know that, right? Uh, Especially as a community uh, that has a large population of minorities, it's really important for y'all to see yourselves in some of the wisdom 
uh, that you see here from the front. So that's just a side note. I wanted y'all to see that. But listen to what Dr. Callahan is saying. In seeking after his own welfare, Peter gained nothing. With the intervention of Jesus, there is more than than enough. Notice in the story that Jesus is not calling the disciples to forget their needs. They need to feed their families. They need to work. He's not calling them to minimize or forget their needs. What he is inviting them to instead is to trust that God will meet their needs as they make room for the needs of others. So God is not calling you to forget yourself. (laughs) He's calling you to trust God to take care of you as you concern yourself for others. We don't want the toxic teaching of saying, minimize yourself or uh, abandon yourself. You know, it's interesting to me. This is a side note. uh, But... You know, there was a few years ago where I read that passage to deny yourself and follow God. And I think oftentimes in the past, that, that passage has come to me in a way that has led me to some like really toxic practices, to forget myself uh, because God is more important. And I think that's a misnomer. It don't make no sense. Uh, and, and here's why. It's hard to deny something I don't understand. I first needed to embrace who I was, flaws and all, darkness and all. I needed to make it a part of who I was so that I can discern by the Spirit of God what are the things I need to deny and what are the things I need to celebrate. Because oftentimes what we do, oftentimes what we do is we hurry the denying and sometimes we sacrifice Things God ain't asked us to sacrifice. Sometimes we abandon and minimize things that God said, oh, no, that's part of you. I gave it to you. But I needed to first understand who I was, embrace who I was, accept who I was, flaws and all, sin and all, to then say, oh, this is what God wants me to deny So that I don't mistakenly batch everything together, beauty and darkness, and give it all away when God is like, but I gave you this. This was beautiful. This was part of who you were. You know, one of the most pervasive things about tragedy and trauma is that it convinces us that there's not enough. We live with a not enough uh, mentality, worldview, right? You're hurt, you're wounded by uh, something that someone has said to you, done to you. Maybe you're hurt and wounded by something that you did. The shame and the guilt of something that you've done on somebody now weighs heavy on you, and that becomes trauma. Excuse me, that becomes trauma and woundedness. And what begins, what that begins to develop into, is this mindset of there's just not enough. It's a scarce mentality. There's not enough time for healing. There's not enough people who care or protect us. Not enough time or experiences to bounce back. Not enough resources for everyone. And what begins to happen is that when you live out of that reality, you either drown in despair or you're consumed by self-interest and the people around you hurt the most. You either drown in despair or you are consumed by self-interest. You know, my buddy, Pastor John O., he's out in Atlanta. He and I worked on this documentary together, and he said this about tragedy. He said, tragedy doesn't ruin people. Hopelessness does. We all go through tragedy. We all go through some significantly harder than others, but we all experience trials at our own varying degrees. But tragedy isn't what knocks us off the rocker. Hopelessness is. And part of what we're seeing in these verses is the invitation to reclaim a relationship that we still got access to. Jesus understands that intimacy and connection is far more satisfying than achievements. So when he says, yo, throw your nets on the other side, he's not saying I'm not trying to make you a productive fisherman. I'm trying to get you to the shore so we can have this meal and we can be together. He's not saying, I'm not trying to make you more productive, because some of us build our identity out of our ability to be productive, and then when we're not productive, we don't know who we are. 
So what God is saying is far greater and far more forceful than your production or your ability to be productive is connection with me. And this is why even after after denying Jesus three times, Jesus still feeds that boy. Peter denied Jesus three different times on three different occasions. Just before Peter said, yo, if all my boys flake, I'll never flake on you. Just before, I'll always be here, Jesus. Right after that, Peter flakes three times, and here he is now eating a meal with Jesus because Jesus is that dude. You know, it's so, important how, it's so important how we show up for people. So important what kind of presence you offer. You know, one of the most impactful and forceful things is how somebody is when they're with you in the different circumstances of your life. And for Jesus, it mattered. It mattered for Jesus how people experienced him. This is why after having been denied by Peter, who opened his mouth too quick, like Peter walked in with his foot in his mouth, and he came in, and and after having denied Jesus three times, it was important for Jesus, for Peter to experience Jesus as a soft, forgiving, kind God. So that's why he says, yo, man, let me cook this meal for you, bro. Let me cook this meal for you, bro. It mattered to Jesus how people experienced him, and it should for us too. You see, how we show up can either stand in the way of the things that we believe, or they can help to promote them. If you say we believe in in the tenderheartedness of God, in the kindness of God, in the gentleness of God, in the truthfulness of God, in the uh, confidence of God, in in the social justice, of in the justice of God, if we say that we truly believe in those things, yet the way that other people experience us doesn't give that off, and something's standing in the way. We either promote our values and beliefs with the way we show up for people or we hinder them. I'll give you an illustration. My son, you know, we're, as I said before, we're from uptown. I was born and raised in New York, but my family's from uh, the Caribbean, the Dominican Republic, in fact. And uh, I just feel like baseball comes naturally to us. And so, <laughs> uh, oh, okay. And so, uh, <clears throat> you know, my son was in this, like, perfect baseball scenario uh, when he was about eight or nine, we were in, in a little league game. I was volunteer coaching. Uh, and if you know anything about baseball, you realize that this is, in, in, in fact, the be- best baseball scenario. So he's on, uh, he's on the plate batting. Uh, there's a man on second and third. This is the very last inning. They got two outs. He's got three balls and two strikes. It's like, yo, you couldn't, you couldn't draw this up any better. And so, uh, you know, just as I taught him, he kind of stood there, had his perfect baseball stance, had his arm up, looking at the, at the ball. And just before the ball came in, he kind of throws his hand up to the umpire like, yo, I need a break. And I'm like, yo, what is this kid doing? Kind of walks to the dugout where I am, and he's like deeply breathing. He's like, Poppy, I'm so nervous. What do I do? And I'm like, man, get your butt back on the plate. Look at the ball and swing, at the, swing the bat. You know what I mean? Like, what you want me to tell you? And he probably went back to the base like that. This was useless. Thank you, Dad. And so, um, anyways, he goes back to the plate. I, you know, I gave him like the little, you got it, buddy, you know, kind of thing. He goes back to the plate, goes back to his stance. The ball comes in. He swings. He misses. Strike. Game over. They lose. Pretty devastating. <clears throat> and, you know, at eight and nine years old, the kids are not, the other team is not, being helpful. They're like, yeah, we won. You lost, losers. I'm like looking over at the other coach. I'm like, yo, bro, talk to your team. What's going on? Um, But my son, as you would imagine, was sobbing in tears, walks up to me as as the teams are shaking hands. And I ask him the silly question, like, what's wrong, papi? Duh. Um, And he looks at me, and what he says made me realize how important the next few moments were going to be for his life and and mine. He said, Papi, I'm sorry I disappointed you. And uh, I looked at him and I realized, man, I I held so much weight over his life. Whatever I said next was going to shape him 
in ways that I think some of us as adults know how, right? That some things that have happened in our childhood still live in our bones and oftentimes keep us from living out our faith faithfully. You know, one mentor of mine said this one time to me. He said, he said Rich, uh, Jesus may have saved uh, your soul, but Grandpa still lives in your bones. And uh, I realized that my journey with my son was going to be really important from, from there on forward. And so I looked at him and I said, Papi, let me ask you a few questions. The first one is this. <clears throat> Do you know why I love you? And he said to me, you know, as he wiped his tears and shrugged his shoulders, he was like, I don't know, because I'm cool, I guess. <laughs> that's real. That's exactly what he said. And I was like, um, you're cool, but that's not it. Uh, I said, why do I love you? He's just like, I don't know, bro. And uh, I said, well, I love you because you're my son. And he looked at me kind of like, ah, I don't know where you're going, bro. Like, what's happening? And so I said, hey, when will you stop being my son? And uh, he said, well, I guess never, really. I said, great. When will I stop loving you? And finally, in as much as an eight, uh, eight and nine-year-old could capture, I think he understood where I was going. And what I have from that moment on, even as he grows and goes into high school now, processed with him is this. I said, son, Bobby, look, your, your achievements can make me proud. And your failures will undoubtedly disappoint me. But neither will have an impact on my love for you that my love remains consistent. And I knew, I knew in that moment, and I'm thankful for this, that whatever, however I showed up for my son at that moment was going to shape the way that he understood not only our relationship, but how he was going to understand himself in relationship to God. How we show up for one another matters. Here's the second thing. I'm way over time. Here's the second thing I want to share with y'all. Not only is God better at providing than we are at producing, but the second thing I think this passage teaches us is this. Being present with ourselves inevitably opens the door to discovering who God is. Being present with ourselves inevitably opens the door to who God is. Look, watching Peter's life over the course of the Bible is very entertaining. I don't know if you've ever followed the story of Peter, if you've read it. If you haven't, that's fine. We're going to go through it in just a second. But following his life... It's comical, it's entertaining, but it's also liberating because Peter is the one to speak hastily. Peter is the one to say something wildly outrageous without thinking about it before. And church, I got to be honest, I love that about him. I love it about him because it says something about the importance of what it means to be present with what you are feeling and who you are in order to discover who God is. I, I, I need y'all to follow me because I don't want y'all to trash y'all's feelings because a lot of people, because you might have heard people saying faith over feelings. Feelings are deeply important because they are the metric by which you can find God. If you look closely and if you find the courage to lean into some of the harder feelings that you feel, you will find God. In other words... The journey to discover who we are and the one to discover who God is are two lanes on the same road. You cannot progress in one and not the other. Look at verse 7. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord from John, he plunged into the sea. This is Peter. This is just what he does. Peter has always tried almost obnoxiously to show how deeply committed he was to Jesus more than the rest. Like It was like, bro, what are you doing? Like, Why are you out here just like... One up and everybody, like, we don't follow Jesus. Like, we walking with him. Why are you trying to show out? So what I want to do for the next few moments is consider some of the most iconic Peter moments, just to show you how wildly outrageous Peter is. Can I do that? Okay, cool. Matthew chapter 4, Peter drops everything when Jesus says, follow me. Now, why this is big is because in that time, to fish was a sustainable thing. This was for his sustainability, his family sustainability, but not just his wife and his children, but the families around him that were connected. You see, because people at that time were communal. So for Peter to drop his livelihood just because Jesus says, follow me, is pretty wild crazy. 
Matthew chapter 14, Peter steps out of another boat and onto the water in the middle of a terrible storm just to go to where Jesus is. Irrational. Matthew chapter 26, in front of all his boys, Jesus, uh, he tells Jesus that even if they flake on their com- uh, commitment to him, he will never flake on his commitment. All right, Peter's wilding. And then here's the one that eats the, takes the cake. Matthew chapter 16, he rebukes Jesus for telling the disciples that he would not allow, uh, that he would have to suffer and die in the hands of the authorities. He has the gall and confidence and arrogance and hubris to just tell Jesus himself, nah, 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 we're not going to let that happen. If there's anything I think we can learn from the very messy and complex relationship that Peter has with Jesus is this, that Peter could not have learned how to, uh, could not have learned the deeply, how deeply patient, understanding, and forgiving Jesus is were it not for the countless moments that he fell short. He could not have learned how patient he is if it wasn't for Peter failing time and time again. In other words, it was the very moments that Peter wished he could get back that most clearly showed him both who he was and who God is. It was precisely in the moments with his foot in his mouth that Peter's knowledge of Jesus became his experience with Jesus. Because as I said earlier, Knowledge will not save a single one of us, but experiences with God will. And whatever Peter knew about Jesus that made him so confident in himself did not hold steady for Peter. It was in his failure that he realized God's commitment. As Peter learned how fragile his commitment to Jesus was, He also discovered how faithful Jesus' commitment to him was. As Peter learned how deep his pride went, he discovered how determined Jesus' love was. For every moment of radical confidence that Peter experienced came a moment of sobriety. Look, y'all, man, listen. I've had some moments in my life where I felt like, ooh, the Lord is with me. What I say, what I do, man, this is just touched by the Lord, and in the very next moment looked like a fool. Like I didn't just have confidence in God. With every radical moment of confidence that Peter experienced came a moment of sobriety where he realized that he wasn't as confident or as secure or as bold as he previously thought. But church, none of that mattered to Jesus. Peter and the disciples were still his friends, as he called them in the verses, worthy of a hot meal prepared by God himself. Now, could you imagine what the disciples were thinking when they were on the boat and they heard this voice come from the shadows calling them friends? Now, for context, y'all need to understand that Jesus and his disciples, while Jesus was still with them on earth, they were, they were chaotic. They caused a lot of ruckus. They were very disruptive, not only to the, social, the, to the status quo, but to the religious leaders, they were not very popular, though everybody knew who, they, knew who they were. So to be associated with the disciples was not a very convenient thing, yet it was Jesus who said friend to them. I'm willing to be associated with you. I wouldn't be surprised if all of them remembered as they heard Jesus call out to them friends, if they remember just a week ago. Just a week ago, Jesus, before he had been crucified, had this meal with his friends and laid out so many things to them. And among the things that he said, John 15, 15 says this, I do not call you servants anymore because servants do not know what his master is doing. Instead, I have called you what? Friends. Because everything I have made known to you is what I've heard from the Father. Look, if Peter, if I'm Peter... I'm feeling both unworthy and very thankful for what Jesus is doing in this moment. Very unworthy and yet very thankful for this much kindness. But church, could I tell you that that's exactly what makes God's love so compelling? That is precisely what makes God's love so compelling. A love that causes God to see us in a way that we have difficulty seeing ourselves with. 
you know, as I mentioned, you know, I've, I've been married now for a, a, a few years and with my kids. I've got to be honest, man, some of the most profound moments that I've experienced is being able to catch my wife or my kids look at me in certain moments. Maybe a moment of confession or a moment of weakness or a moment of joy or a moment of uh, grieving and loss. I happen to catch the way my wife looks at me or the way my kids look at me, and it's so deeply transformative. Because they don't have to say a word, but their gaze says so much to me that the way they look at me, again, how they show up for me speaks volumes. Because one of the most transforming and perhaps devastating things to experience is being able to notice notice how someone who loves you looks at you. How do they look at you? How are they showing up for you? Now, that could either be a very transformative thing or it could be a very devastating thing. Because sometimes nothing reaches our soul faster or with greater force than a gaze. And in the, in, the, in, the, in the Christian space, we often tell people, hey, look to God. In moments of trial and hardship, somebody will say to you, hey, just look to God. But could I encourage us to go a bit further than that, to, to kind of like parse that a little bit, to break that apart and, and help people what we mean by that? Because what's so transforming about looking at God is noticing how God looks at you. What's so transformative, what's so powerful, what's so forceful about encouraging someone to look at God is noticing how God is looking at you. Because you have struggled to see yourself with compassion. Because you have struggled to look on yourself with forgiveness. Because you've struggled to be soft with yourself. Because you've struggled to be kind to yourself. Because you've struggled to be compassionate and tender and good and loving and gracious with yourself. Looking at God and noticing how he looks at you with a great deal of compassion and a great deal of mercy and a great deal of love and grace. I was like, God, I didn't even know he was looking at me like that. So when you encourage somebody, look to God, the force of that is noticing how God is looking at you because now you can see yourself differently. Friends, look, our passage today ends with something really unique. We can have the worship team come up. I'll speed through this. The passage ends with the two words that brought Jesus and Peter together in the beginning. Follow me. The very first words exchanged by Jesus and Peter was from Jesus, follow me. And here's how the passage ends here. After all of this drama, Jesus once again says, follow me. Now, what's interesting to me is not that Jesus is saying this. Jesus said this a lot. What's interesting to me is that he's saying this now. Why is Jesus saying to Peter, follow me now, like, like, like they didn't have history together? <laughs> like they hadn't been walking together and doing great things for the last three years, like they hadn't been in the mud together. Why is Jesus saying now, follow me? And what I think Jesus is trying to show us is that he understands something about the journey with him that we today often forget, and it's this that we need to take up his invitation to trust him whether we are at the beginning of our journey or years into it. The invitation doesn't change just because you've been walking with Jesus for 30 years. That the very first words he told you when you first opened your eyes and saw Jesus, follow me, are the same words he's telling you today decades later. Follow me. It It hasn't gotten complicated. Follow me. And you know what, church? Towards the end of his life, I think Peter understood this too. Towards the end of his life, Peter understood this too. You know, decades after this moment in John 21, Peter writes a letter to all the Christians that were being persecuted and scattered all around the known world. And in this letter... He, encouraged the, he encourages them with this thing out of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. 
5, 6, and 7. Verse 7 in particular. Here's what he says to him decades later. He says, humble yourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that he, God, may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares to him. This is Peter, y'all. Yeah. He says, this is Peter. <laughs> the one who denied, the, the, the three times denying Peter. The I will never flake on you even if everybody else does Peter. The no you won't, Jesus, Peter. <laughs> the oh, that's my foot in my mouth, Peter. The proud, arrogant Peter, this is him. Decades later, a life now lived of living out this truth, walking with Jesus. This is how he now responds at the end of his life. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. This ain't about producing. I tried that. I casted the net and nothing came back. Humble yourself so that he may exalt you. Dang, it didn't work out for me when I threw it this way. But when Jesus intervened, man, there was more than enough. More that I could manage, in fact. Humble yourself. Man, talk about speaking from experience. Epiphany, my prayer for all of us is that whenever we are speaking about the gracious, loving hand of God, it would be from experience. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. Uh, There's so much, God, that... uh, I know you've wanted to do both in my life and in the life of your people. God, we invite you. We push past uh, the reluctance. We push past the fears of what it means to be vulnerable, to give ourselves to the work of growing and maturing mentally, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, of course. Holy Spirit, do the work uh, that I never could in 40 minutes. Uh, God, take what you've deposited in me and in your people, let it resonate, follow them, uh, God, as they walk, as they make decisions with their spouse, their kids, their work, their school, whatever it may be, God, I just pray that you would walk with us, give us wisdom as we walk in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.